Okay, so uh, yeah, we're talking about behavioral biology. We usually start with the fact that we all know the world's going to be better. You sort of um, line up all the explanations people give for that. They, they tend to follow in these categories sedentary lifestyle, dietary quality, potentially dietary quantity as a separate uh, question. So I'm an economist, so I can't help putting these in the economic perspective. Um, and you, know, you, you think about it, if you, if you do list all those causes, they, they fit pretty easily into either a you know, sort of a uh, crisis, right, the relative crisis calories, or physical exercise, or dietary fat, uh, income effects, right, the poor or the rich, uh, and, um, you know, and uh, perhaps conditioned on information, right, nutritional knowledge, uh, food labels, marketing, things like this. Uh, so I'm going to take a, a somewhat different tack today, uh, and I'm going to put obesity in naturalistic perspective, um, sort of building on the basic idea that, that sort of the first thing a biologist would tell you about about uh, obesity is, is it, it you know, animals evolve the ability to store energy as, as fat in order to survive periods of starvation, deprivation. Um, uh, oh, and not to sell economic theory short, of course, economic theory can deal with uncertainty. It's just, it's, it's often ignored because the economic study of obesity. Uh, uh, and I, I always have to remind myself to say this. Uh, my, so, we, so I'm going to be talking about uh, some animal behavior literature, some human population studies, and so forth. Uh, uh, I'm not saying that people literally think about this. Right? This isn't, these aren't conscious mechanisms I'm talking about. It's, it could be completely driven by, right? you experience stress, right? and the stressor somehow induces metabolic changes because you gain weight. Um, so don't roll your eyes yet at that, at that idea. My best convince you. Okay. Um, so uh, starting at the, the sort of molecular level, <coughs> I've got here a list of the clinical symptoms of star starvation. So hyperphagia, this is their ravenous eating, overeating, uh, decreased body temperature, decreased physical activity, uh, immune, phys immune function stops working, infertility. Um, and so the natural question then is, which of these two mice in the picture here is the one that's starving, the one on the left that's fat, the one on the right that's thin? Uh, and you probably all know the answer that it's the, the, the one on the left is the, the um, the mouse that's lacking the, the gene for leptin, right? So uh, leptin is the hormone that's secreted by body fat, tells your brain essentially how much fat you've got in your body. Uh, so the, the OBOB mouse, it's called obese type mouse, uh, it becomes dressed right, morbidly obese, uh, and yet exhibits all these symptoms right, of starvation. Um, so this is sort of, you know, note that some of these, you know, some of these effects are behavioral. Physiological. So this, right, the, the obese mouse uh, thinks he's starving because of a, a sort of a defect of endocrinology. Um, so the same, so left works the same way in humans. Of course, they, uh, we have the same gene, uh, and, uh, and they have identified uh, at least a couple of human cases of this same mutation. Okay. So, uh, moving on to, to more behavioral models. There are lots of animal models of seasonal fattenings. One of the, one of the most thoroughly studied is, is the Siberian hamster, shown here in the picture. Um, so, they, you know, so they've, uh, 
you might so you might ask the question no you see animals in nature fattening right, to prepare for the winter right, to prepare for a period of, of uh, when food's not available uh, so with the Siberian hamster they can take them into the laboratory and figure out which cue it is right, which environmental cue it is that's triggering this seasonal fattening in nature uh, it turns out it's photo period it's length of day right, it's a fairly reliable signal in nature so I mean, so my understanding is that once the right, once the laboratory scientists figure this out, they could make these hamsters as fat or as thin as they liked, uh, right? Based on how long they left the lights on in the laboratory. Uh, so uh, there are some interesting parallels in, in uh, sort of human epidemiology. So uh, the uh, mental disorder we call seasonal affective disorder. Uh, people get it as winter's coming on. It's characterized by depression, hypersomnia, so oversleeping, hyperphagia, overeating, and weight gain. Uh, and and I, I, to my knowledge, they still haven't come up with a better drug to treat seasonal affective disorder than just exposure to artificial light. Right? So they'll put these patients in, in uh, light beds. And, and I mean, you can show other things. So they know something about the molecular biology, that it uh, you know, varies genetically, things like this. Uh, there's also a, an illness known as summer depression, which is a mirror image of seasonal affective disorder that causes you to uh, causes insomnia, you lose your appetite, and lose weight. Okay, uh, another another animal model here. Uh, so willow tits. Um, I understand that the, the ecologists who study willow tits can, can quite easily tell their dominance hierarchies. So if you study them, we find willow tits in nature. There will be uh, in any given foraging site, there would be a dominant tit and a subordinate tit. And the, these dominance hierarchies determine the access to food. So if the dominant sort of gets first choice at the, at the food supply, the best foraging sites, and chases away the subordinate. Uh, but the, the empirical finding is that in spite of this preferred access to food uh, on the part of the dominance, is that the subordinates uh, will be fatter than the dominance. Uh, the theoretical uh, explanation for this, uh, this is Clark and Ekman, 1995, I think they write down a nice little dynamic programming model. And they say, well, it, it makes sense for that subordinate to be fatter because uh, he's more at risk of starvation. And they have so much data on these little birds that they can actually count the bodies and calculate the risk of starvation. And they, uh, the model fits pretty well with what they see. Um, uh, interesting corollary that comes out of their theoretical model, which was later um, actually shown in the third reference down here, Broden Lumber, um, is that if food becomes scarce enough, the direction of that dominance gradient uh, reverses. So that then you'll see the then you'll see the dominant being fatter than the subordinate. Right? And the reason the reason theoretically that, that happens is that you know at that point if food becomes scarce enough, they both like to fatten, right? But only the dominant has the ability. Okay, so it's it's hard to ignore. So the, I mean, we've heard a lot about uh, you know, subordinate subordination in, in human cultures, um, and even um, cases in which the sort of the, the, you know, the gradient uh, reverses. Right. So you, you sometimes hear talk about how in rich countries it's the poor people who are fat, in poor countries it's the rich people who are fat, at least historically. Um, so it's at least uh, the parallel is, is at least interesting. Okay, so uh, so I want to so sort of inspired by these 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 examples from the natural world, which seem to have pretty clear parallels uh, in, in human epidemiology. Uh, I want to take that and ask uh, my my variation of material risk drive incidence of obesity in the modern world. Right? 
So I'm going to use the term economic insecurity, um, and I'll define that for you in a moment. Uh, so there are uh, so there, this topic. I will tell you, this topic is not an easy one to study. Right? So it's difficult to measure risk, right? Just by its nature, right? The fact that uh, you can't just take a snap, snap, snapshot and know about risk, right? You've got to measure differences over time, right? You measure the ups and downs, uh, come up with some idea of the distribution of the random outcomes you're seeing. Um, it's also not clear, uh, a priori, uh, which uh, environmental indicators might uh, humans might rely on right, as, you know, in addition to photo period as, as cues of impending scarcity. Um, uh, but I would say that anthropology provides some clues. Right? You can sort of uh, ask, uh, ask an anthropologist what the uh, these situations which might have provided some uh, some degree of security in the, in, in the human evolutionary history. Uh, there's, there's a lot to be said about that. Um, so now I'm going to uh, show you some of the literature. So uh, and I I, uh, I realized today sitting through these through through our workshop that, that I left out several studies I shouldn't have. Of course, this is the uh, one of the costs of not being the first speaker. Uh, and I'll try to mention those. Okay, so I'm going to argue that this idea, right, that, that uh, material risk might drive the incidents, is actually apparent if you look in the in the literature already. Uh, and so, some examples. Uh, uh, so we heard talk today about poverty and inequality, uh, and I couldn't help hearing insecurity when I when, when I heard a lot of these examples. Uh, uh, inequality, in particular. Uh, I would have asked this earlier, uh, but it's but it's sort of a long question. It, it, the when we heard, heard the, the talk about inequality, um, so um, there are good theoretical reasons I think for inequality um, to have independent effects, an unequal income distribution have independent effects on on body weight. We heard some of these earlier today, um, but. It's also true that when you measure inequality, you could be in part measuring insecurity. Right? So if you live in a if you live in a country where everybody's got the same income on average, but your income bounces up and down from every year, and you took a cross-section view of income, what you'd see is inequality. Right? You'd see in any given year you'd see some people with high incomes, some people with low incomes. Uh, and, and that would come out that would come out as inequality in the data. Even though it's it's really only a temporary inequality in some sense, right? It's really it's just an indicator of, of insecurity, right? This, the extent to which my income is at risk. Uh, so uh, they, the the um, I was thrilled to come across this paper, uh, Goschalk and Moffat, uh, latest issue latest issue of Journal of Economic Perspectives, um, where they look at income instability uh, in the U.S. since the early 70s, maybe, maybe longer than that, go back. Uh, and so what they do, they ask this question, right? So they, um, they acknowledge that uh, income inequality has been going up rather dramatically in the US over this time period. Uh, and they ask this question, is it because insecurity's gone up, because incomes are bouncing up and down, or is it because you got a permanent diversion, divergence between uh, rich and poor? Uh, and, and, and they clearly put a lot of work into this. They have more than just this paper. 
uh, several papers on the topic, and they're pretty careful about coming up with uh, statistical methodologies that can separate those things out from given the data they have. Uh, and their big finding in this, right, this, this uh, latest paper is that uh, about half of the increase in inequality is due to uh, uh, what they call transitory variance. Right? So that actually half of it is an increase in income insecurity. Uh, so we heard talk about social status, um, social network, social capital, um, uh, and again, this is this is where I would point to anthropology, right? That if you if humans evolved in sort of small group settings, you're you know in pre-industrial world, if you wanted to have a secure food supply, you know the best way would probably be to you know engage in reciprocal altruism, right? Have strong bonds with your uh, with your friends. Abner offers written about self-control. It's also our affluence and self-control. It's also a favorite topic of mine. Uh, John Holmes also is, uh, has related work on uh, time preference. Uh, so this actually self-control actually fits pretty well into this idea that uh, if you uh, if you uh, if you're adapted, right? If you're if you're evolved in an, in an uncertain environment and you're suddenly plumped down in a certain environment, uh, what you get is what they call an evolutionary mismatch, right? Which is sort of observationally equivalent to, to a self-control problem. So these self-control problems we see are these, are these what looks like time preference could be a manifestation of this, right? So uh, belief that there's some inherent uh, default risk uh, looking looking forward in the future. And a natural response would be to pattern. Uh, Stress-related eating, we heard a lot of talk about this today too. I just make the point that this, right, this, uh, well, a couple of points. The uh, stress, I think, I, I feel like stress is a bit of an overused word, right? It's, there are lots of different kinds of stressors, and it seems inappropriate to lump them all into, into uh, one category. Um, I'm going to, so in, in a moment, I'll describe some research on why I look at a particular kind of stress, right? Look at uh, economic insecurity and ask whether it affects body weight. Okay, there's also a pretty good literature on food insecurity. Uh, so there are associations reported, sometimes uh, sometimes in longitudinal data, um, between food insecurity and obesity. So this is these are uh, based on survey questions that uh, let's see started being asked ten years ago or so. Or they asked people at any point in the past year, did you did you not have enough money to buy food? Uh, and this, uh, the, the effect that they've seen, Maryland Townsend and others have seen, is, is that there's there's an association, especially in women, between food insecurity and obesity. Um, they uh, and, and if you they interview these mothers and they'll tell you, uh, you know, if I don't have enough money to buy food, I'll buy food for my children and go without myself. Right? So it's it almost right, it almost sounds like an optimal response to this would be to fatten yourself. Uh, financial insecurity. This was a pers uh, prospective study uh, I found. Right? So they they asked they had a group of firefighters or something. They they asked them, "Do you worry about money?" It turned out this was a good prospective predictor of, of weight gain in the, the, the years following. Uh, I have a uh, a new paper uh, just out on job insecurity and, and nicotine. It turn, turns out there's some really interesting. Uh, you sort of look at the physiological effects of nicotine and tobacco use. Um, it, it, it's, it, 
you could almost say that uh, you know, smoking cigarettes is is uh, physio- the physiological equivalent of having five good friends. Right? And so, you, so, uh, right, so you, you, weight loss tends to come with smoking, uh, and a lot of the sort of um, psychosocial evidence about about smoking sort of fits with this. Uh, in this paper, we uh, we show. Uh, well, we show empirically that it, that it looks like uh, the job insecurity causes people to smoke. And so it's almost like a self-medication story. Right? If you're experiencing security, you sort of lower your insecurity biochemically by, you know, by smoking. Uh, and this last paper listed here, uh, uh, so there, there are a few papers in the literature that, that uh, look at job insecurity and weight gain. Uh, the last paper in here I'm going to tell you about in, in some detail. Uh, let's see. So, the paper in the back here is the, is the, uh, the one that, uh, that I was fortunate, to have, fortunate enough to have out and offer as a, a referee on. <laughs> it's, I understand it's going to be published online this week, as a matter of fact, uh, at, uh, in Journal of Bioeconomics. Um, but this, and it's, it's a survey paper that talks about a lot of it, some of the studies I've mentioned here. Uh, uh, but I'm going to go into more detail on this one, which was published earlier this year, Why the Corporate Fat, Weight Gain, and Economic Insecurity, with Chris Stoddard and Mike Barnes. So this is what we did. Uh, so we had data from the National Longitudinal Survey of Youth. This was a... Uh, a labor market, originally designed as a labor market study, but it just so happened that they asked height and weight every time they interviewed these people, so it uh, turned out to be a nice uh, nice way of looking at uh, like obesity as well. Um, I mean, we use self-reported data, we use the NHANES uh, self-reported uh, database to, uh, to correct for self-reporting error. Uh, so in the sample, so we look at a sample of working age men from the NLSY, about 2,500 of them uh, between 1988 and 2000, right? So this is a, a window of time in which this cohort was all uh, sort of beyond college age. These are working age men. Uh, and what we want to ask is, is can we, and so uh, because the, uh, because this is a labor market survey, we have really detailed uh, job market histories for these people. Right? So we know, uh, you know, for this 12 years, we can tell you which weeks they were unemployed, for instance, right? uh, what their incomes were, and this kind of thing. <coughs> um, so we have sort of control for the usual, usual demographics, which I won't list. Uh, and to, to, to test this, this theory, we had to come up with measures of economic insecurity. Uh, we came up with six. It's not clear which measure we should use. Uh, we came up with six. Uh, so probability of job loss. Right? This is this is actually a, um, you can look at sort of number of weeks unemployed in this in this uh, if you want a linear model. You could look at number of weeks unemployed, <coughs> um, or you could plug it into Bayes' formula and come up with a Bayesian probability that I'll become unemployed tomorrow, right? given my unemployment experience in the past. Uh, that's what we use. It actually doesn't matter. You can do you can. Uh, you can calculate the variable looking for it to be the same result. Uh, another one was simpler number of number of years in which your income was fifty percent or less of what it was the year before. And a fair number, surprising number of people went this in our sample. Uh, 
dispersion of the income path. So this is right. So we have uh, annual incomes uh, for these people, annual biannual incomes for these people for 12 years. Um, what we do is we ask how dispersed are those? Is that income path from a linear training? So we we literally take these these observations of annual income for each individual, calculate an R squared value from a linear trend. That's a dispersion of income path. <coughs> using that same uh, using that same method, uh, right, uh, looking at uh, the linear trend, we can also uh, use the right, the T distribution we get out of that simple individual over regression to calculate a probability of falling into poverty. Um, and then uh, it sort of measures of economic security. We look at uh, whether you received an inheritance in the past year or in, in the amount, and, uh, and whether you have health insurance. Okay, so six measures. Um, there's sort of an obvious problem. Um, we, we observe both these economic, economic outcomes, right? so whether they experienced employment, so unemployment and so forth over our time window. Um, and we also have this health outcome, right? 12-year weight gain. And you know, what we want to know is, does is it the we want to know is that insecurity, right? This sort of um, facts from your history that would um, determine your perception of, of risk today. Uh, does that affect? Is that what's causing the weight gain? Um, right? And so the reason we worry about that is you could have reverse causation. Right? It could be that. Uh, uh, of these people are being uh, uh, discriminated against in the job market, and so it's the, it's the weight gain that's causing the unemployment in some sense. Um, and then there's the usual problem of unobserved personal characteristics. Right? So it, it could be that there's something about obese people that causes them also to become unemployed. And it could be anything. Right? I say laziness here, but it, didn't. it could be anything. Right? Something from childhood experience. Um, so we want to uh, we want to take care of these problems and be able to say something. Uh, we hope about causation. Uh, so we use a two-stage least squares model, pretty standard economics, and, and use sometimes epidemiology. <coughs> so the way that estimation method works is you we uh, we use local unemployment rates to predict our insecurity measures. Right? This is the first regression, and then in the second regression we use those predicted values. Of economic insecurity, uh, and, right, and we use uh, we plug that into regression on weight gain, right, where weight gain is the, is the independent, uh, the, the dependent variable. Okay, so um, you could think of this as being like sort of a natural experiment, right? So you, ex what, what we want is we want we want, we only want to account for the people whose um, economic insecurity changed their perceptions about about risk, right? So um, this this estimation method is sort of a statistical equivalent to um, um, to uh, only counting the people whose right, whose employment was caused by something out of their control, right? By the local local job market conditions. Uh, and so, uh, as long as you're willing to buy that that the mechanism here, um, the mechanism for weight gain is through the um, through the local experience. Right, and that there's no direct effect between the, the, the local and regional unemployment rates in the weight gain, um, then this, this assumption is valid, and we can say something about causation. Okay, so these are results. Um, so this is body weight in pounds. Uh, <coughs> 
So let's see. So this says that uh, uh, this coefficient here says that if my likelihood of becoming uh, unemployed is one percent higher, I will have uh, I will be 0.6 pounds heavier. Right, so close to one percent, one percent difference. Um, if uh, for each additional fifty uh, percent income drop I experience, I'm five pounds heavier. Uh, I don't know how to interpret the units on an R squared, but it's the direction is what we expect it to be. Right, so if your if if your uh, if your income is more closer to the linear trend, you uh, your R squared will be higher. Uh, poverty is uh, in insignificant. These are standard errors here, so this is this is completely insignificant. Um, uh, which is interesting because it's kind of a different question, right? I mean, you could uh, this this would be an this is an obvious question to ask if you're looking at insecurity. Is it just the low end that's driving this? Uh, and it, it, you know, this at least suggests that maybe it's not. Maybe it's it's, it's all the uh, the entire income spectrum we've got here. Uh, inheritance, someone dies and leaves you money, you lose weight, not a lot. It takes a lot of money, it turns out, to, <laughs> to, uh, for that to be worth much. Um, but it's highly significant. Um, health insurance, um, not significant. It's nearly significant, but it's not. Um, but the sign is in the right direction. Right? So if you have health insurance, you can think of this as, right, as being a, um, a source of economic security. Okay, I'm going to tell you now about a, uh, a project with Joe McCluskey uh, in which we, so let's see, I've, I've gone from, uh, I should, uh, I've gone from uh, the molecular level to the animal behavior level to the individual behavior level. Uh, so now, now we're going to look at the country level just for fun. It seems like an interesting question to ask. Uh, uh, so we look at obesity rates uh, in OECD countries. Um, we use OECD health data, which it, uh, those of you who worked with it probably know it's a complete mess. Uh, for one thing, the, the numbers for the U.S. are completely wrong, uh, by several percent in some cases. Uh, so we did, did a, put a lot of work into correcting these data. Um, uh, assembled a panel of, of 17 countries, uh, roughly from 1990 to 2007. <coughs> uh, and, yeah, so the, the problem with the OECD health numbers, uh, there are more than one. So one is that some of the numbers are self-reported, some are at, some are measured, uh, height and weight. Um, another one is the demographic windows are different, right? So the age windows, which are covered by the numbers reported in the database, are different. Turns out that has a pretty big effect. Uh, generally, older people are uh, heavier. All that tails off if you get old enough. Um, so we corrected these data. Um, and I'll just tell you, I'll show you the results. I'll tell you the, the preliminary results we got are, uh, and this has been reported before, that the, the uh, well, I suppose, first of all, is that sort of per capita GDP, um, measures of food prices that we could come up with, and um, measures of dietary quality don't do much to explain the variation. Uh, this, so I should be clear, this is a fixed effects model, right, which means that we essentially have a dummy variable for each country. So what, it's, what drives our results is changes over this 18-year period. 
in obesity and in our explanatory variables. Uh, so, uh, so these sort of don't don't seem to explain uh, right, variation in at least changes in obesity across countries. Um, the strongest variables we get are labor market variables. So. Uh, uh, this is, uh, and we heard some mention of this earlier today. So, number of hours worked turns out the more hours there work per worker in your country, the higher your obesity rate. Um, and compensation has a fairly strong positive effect. So, the higher the compensation per worker in your country, um, the more obesity, the more obese, the higher your obesity rate. Um, uh, but even though even though this is true, overall the explanatory power is pretty weak. Um, so we went back and we, so these are, uh, this, is a, this is a summary of our results. So these are, this column shows, uh, these are obesity rates different from the U.S. Right, after we've done all our corrections. Uh, <clears throat> these, are, um, these are outcomes of the model, right? So these are fixed effects, right? We run this model. Um, and what, this, what that means is these are the extent to which our model can't explain cross-sectional variation in obesity. Right? So this sort of says to me that we haven't, uh, so we're, we, we do pretty well with New Zealand. Uh, right? But the, uh, you know, the rest of these, we see some big numbers here that, that um, <coughs> the model just dumps out. We can't explain this cross-sectional variation. And they're, you know, they're, they're, it's comparable in magnitude to the variation we saw in the raw data. Okay, so we went back to the to, to the raw data itself, and so these are um, these are our corrected data for obesity rates. Um, uh, so these are approximate percent obese in your country in 1990. These are percent percentage obese in 2007, um, and the the order I put them in is according to the difference, right? So right, so 14.5 the difference between. Um, so, you know, this is the one ranking in which the U.S. is not king of the hill here, right? So I felt bad for my country when I saw this. Uh, um, but it also led me to ask, well, what is it about Iceland and New Zealand, uh, right, that could account for this? And so uh, my co-author and I went and we started looking at economic histories, right, in this 1990 to 2007 window. Uh, and what we found, and it doesn't take long to find this, is that people talk about Iceland and New Zealand as being uh, sort of economic miracles during this period. Uh, they both sort of, and, and uh, they both, uh, both countries sort of very aggressively pursue what you might call neoliberal policies, right? So expansion of free trade, right? Um, trimming back of social welfare pro uh, programs, things like this. Uh, and so it's, um, it's doing international comparisons is always difficult because it's hard to get, for just about anything, it's hard to get comparable numbers, right? They're measured the same way across countries and so forth. Um, nevertheless, um, we tried and we came up with this. This is the first thing we came up with. Uh, um, so there, there have been studies done of privatization um, in, in OECD countries. Um, so the variable I've got here um, is revenue from sales of state-owned enterprises, right? So uh, right, this is one of these, one of these um, policies that was popular during this period, was selling off state-owned enterprises. Um, and this number, revenue of sales from the most, revenue from those sales is one measure of the, 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 how aggressive this, these policies were. 
So uh, uh, on the vertical here is the annual growth in obesity, right? percent per year, um, and, and this, um, over this period, 1985 to 1999. Uh, so what's interesting here, um, first of all, when I saw this raw data, I thought, oh no, uh, Iceland doesn't fit. Right? They're, <clears throat> they're, right, the number's way down here, but they're, uh, uh, but they were uh, up here at the top of the list in terms of difference. Uh, so, but you'll see I, I don't have them up here. Or, I'm sorry, I don't have them up here. Uh, and the reason is that, uh, that these data are 1990 to 2007. Uh, these data are 1985 to 1999. Uh, so it turns out <coughs> that if you, uh, and so we have, um, you know, there's obesity data for Iceland that lets you distinguish between the two periods, right? It turns out the, uh, <coughs> that most of Iceland's increase in obesity happened after this. Right? It happened after 1999, um, so in the 2000-2007 window. Um, it also turns out that if you, that there's also privatization data available for Iceland in that period. And, it's, and at that point, they are top of the list. So if you look at Iceland in 2000-2007, they, they would be up here. Um, so, I mean, so that, that seems like a, right, a nice validation to some extent of this relationship we think we're seeing. Um, of course, the curious thing here is the U.S. What, what's, what's the U.S. doing up there? Um, <clears throat> of course, the U.S. never had anything to sell off in 1985, so uh, there wasn't much uh, that could be gained in the way of uh, revenue from privatization. Uh, but there was a lot. There were a lot of other things happening. <clears throat> Uh, and so you could ask this question, was there something in the U.S., right? If, if like me, you're interested in, in asking whether this economic insecurity hypothesis makes sense. Um, was there an increase in economic insecurity in the U.S. over this time? So the, the, the title here, by the way, is taken from Jacob Hacker, right? He wrote a book of this, of this name a couple years ago. Uh, so here are some possibilities. Uh, Many of which Hacker writes about. Uh, so in 1974, Congress passed a law that uh, it exempted, what did they do? They exempted large companies. So uh, most health insurance in the U.S. is, is employer-based, right? So they, you have to have a job to have health insurance. And, and, uh, and, and in 1974, what Congress did was they exempted all large employers from uh, um, any state regulation of their of their health insurance as long as they self-insure. Okay. So they sort of took a big chunk out of the health insurance market that created this uh, uh, created this uh, selection problem in the, in the market that was left. Right? So it left a lot of people um, that work for smaller companies without health insurance. <coughs> uh, rising income instability. So I told you about the study earlier by Gostchoff and, and Gostchoff and Moffitt. Have showed that um, there has been a big rise in economic instability starting in around 1979. Um, actually, uh, I believe the results show that most of the increase happened around then, and then it stayed high since then. So, sort of late 70s, early 80s, income instability went up in the U.S. and it stayed like that uh, until today. <clears throat> uh, in 1981, uh, this was the year of, of uh, 
well, the, the big tax cuts under Reagan, but there's also a, a, a uh, at the time, little notice change that, um, uh, that allowed 401k uh, uh, accounts to be created, right? And so these are individual level pensions. So you can, have, instead of having your company or the government run your pension program um, with a 401k uh, account, you can have your own retirement account, right? So instead of having pooled risk value the drive of your pension, it's, right, it's, it became uh, individualized risk, uh, um, which right, increases the riskiness of your income. And these, and these, uh, this kind of pension completely dominates now in the U.S. And, um, it was almost an accidental uh, law that, uh, <coughs> uh, that it turns out companies like, right? They'd rather have their, comp their employees uh, contributing to their pensions and doing it themselves. And contributions have gone way down uh, with this law. Uh, 1994, North, North American Free Trade Agreement. This was all you would hear about if you watched the news back then, right? All our jobs being sucked down in Mexico, uh, right? It, and uh, this, if you think, so it's sort of the manufacturing sector and, and beyond that, this, this becomes a big source of job insecurity for people. <clears throat> and uh, 1996, of course, we have welfare reform. This, um, uh, so this is the uh, these are subsistence payments, right? If you don't have, if you have no money, uh, you, you can collect welfare in the U.S. But in 1994, they or 19, I'm sorry, 1996, they changed the, the welfare laws in a way that you. Uh, uh, well, let's see. I think the big thing was they put a lifetime limit on the on the amount you could collect, right? So you. So nobody could collect more than two years worth of welfare payments after this, after this reform. So sort of right, pulling the safety net away from the bottom of the distribution. Okay, um, now I'm going to wake you up by being provocative, if I haven't been interesting yet. Uh, uh, and that's, I, ha I actually have a separate line of research, I consider it a separate line of research, that looks at uh, dietary quality. There are lots of interesting things you can say about why people choose the foods they eat. Um, put it in biological perspective. It's a pretty rich story as you can tell. It seems to be worn out by the data. Um, but I've recently come up with a conjecture uh, uh, that could tie these two research agendas together. So I'm going to offer it to you now uh, for fun. <clears throat> okay, so, uh, so one thing that people talk about, in, in, uh, at least in the U.S., with respect to the obesity epidemic, is that um, the density of fast food restaurants has risen dramatically over the time that the obesity epidemic has happened. Um, it seemed that they seem to have increased the most in areas, geographic areas where obesity rates are the highest. Um, and so I'm gonna, I'm gonna offer a, a, an economic insecurity style explanation. So, uh, I, so you all may know of the, uh, the sort of macronutrient debate right, over, over what's more fat than carbohydrates or fats. Um, I, I, so I have to say, it, it's a bit of a curse to, um, to be trained in biology and have the ability to read, uh, you know, sort of the, the, the medical literature and the, the molecular biology literature. And, uh, and so I, I almost feel obliged to, you know, look at the original sources sometimes when I'm uh, reading about nutrition science and so forth, and, uh, it, and it's hard not to form opinions when you do that. Um, <laughs> so, 
Let's see. Oh. Yeah. Okay. We'll start with this. Okay. So, um, so I sort of came across this theory. Uh, it seems compelling. Carbohydrates. Carbohydrates fatten. Fatten. And so starchy foods. This is not a new theory. But, uh, maybe not so popular lately. Um, and I and I and I uh, I was reading Gary Taubes' book. Uh, good calories, bad calories. I think in the UK it's marketed under the title The Diet Delusion. And I read this book in 2007. <coughs> um, uh, he, he describes the, um, the metabolic effects of eating, eating high carbohydrate foods. Um, and they are uh, just like uh, with leptin, as I told you earlier, it, it, uh, carbohydrates cause your body to secrete insulin. Um, it essentially triggers a starvation response in your body. And so insulin is like this, the fattening hormone. Uh, and so it, 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 it uh, occurred to me that that could be an adaptive response, right? That it might be, it might be that um, eating starchy foods is something you would only do during famines, right? For instance, in the, in the natural world, pre-industrial world. Uh, and so I looked, right? So if you look in the anthropology literature, um, there are entire books written on famine foods. Uh, and at the top of the list of everyone is root vegetables, right? This is the last thing they eat, aside from eating their animals, their productive animals. The last thing they eat is the root vegetables, uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, they eat leaves and seeds too, but they're not many calories in those. Uh, so you might have seen this picture. This is from uh, uh, Ludwig's. So Ludwig sort of brought this theory into the mainstream in 2002 with this JAMA article. Um, so the idea here is that you eat carbohydrate-rich food, um, you get a big blood sugar spike, uh, and then your body responds to that blood sugar spike by secreting a bunch of insulin. Um, insulin causes blood sugar to come back down, um, and and this is the this is the interesting part, right? To come back down below baseline. So, and this is uh, the scale here is 30, 60. So we're looking at two hours here. Uh, you wind up getting, so this is where you get sugar cravings, you get hungry. Uh, so, <clears throat> so I'm not the, you know, I, I didn't make this up, there's pretty good literature on this stuff. Um, but if you look at the particulars of, of high insulin, um, is it, you know, it's essentially a cellular starvation response, you get appetite stimulation, uh, and you get lipogenesis, right? So your body starts depositing fat as soon as the insulin levels go up. Uh, so uh, then I, I went and looked, and there's a literature on carbohydrate cravings. And so it turns out that um, carbohydrate craving is a symptom of seasonal affective disorder. It's um, been documented with premenstrual syndrome, um, and it's uh, and you see it with nicotine withdrawal. Uh, so so you know so these are right, so these are sort of cases in which right we think theoretically your body would want to fatten. And they, and they happen to be the times that you, you see the carbohydrate cravings. So I don't know if you buy that. I'm trying to be provocative here. I'm going to throw things at me in the question and answer. Uh, <coughs> but if you put these things together, it, it at least suggests uh, um, that economic, economic insecurity might cause weight gain, at least in part, by inducing changes in dietary composition. You experience insecurity, carbohydrate cravings. Okay, I'll summarize. Uh, 
So lots of parallels, human animal fattening, uh, you know, from the molecular level on up, deep-seated sensitivity to risk. Uh, insecurity hypothesis explains a lot of what we see in epidemiology, I think. A lot of the incidence is consistent with this idea. Um, and I always put this on my slides, right, that I'm not, not talking about conscious considerations here. If, there, if there's one finding from psychology that's um, been shown again and again, it's that uh, humans often don't know about their own motivations. Right? There's no reason to expect people to actually um, do this consciously. And in fact, the reason you expect them not to do it consciously. Okay, so, and so, our conclusion is that the, the, the rise in obesity we see might be due at least in part to change in the economic environment and increase material risk by case by household. Maybe condolence or I can pull that. Uh, and, and consistent with the theme of the conference here, that it might be that the shrinking public expenditures have something to do with our expanding waistlines. Um, so I will, um, I will leave you with an age old prescription for economic insecurity. This is what you should do if you experience economic insecurities, and uh, be happy to take questions. Thank you very much.